It's a funny thing. We think about what it is that we would give to the Lord and what can we do and what difference does what we do make. It's a funny thing. As we continue in this journey through the Gospel of Luke, we're at chapter 21. And chapter 21 opens and closes with something rather mundane, common, everyday, unremarkable. And tucked in between the middle of those two is the end of the world. So it's kind of a strange structure. And to be a little more strange, or in keeping with that strange structure, I'm going to focus a little more on the mundane every day rather than the end of the world stuff, if you'll permit me to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of those things that are in here, but, but there's a captivating a little story, a little story, a little cameo that comes to us right up front. It's a story for you're familiar with, so let me, without trying to introduce it too much, but let's just read the opening verses of Luke chapter 21. They're there at the temple. Lots been going on. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. Now that little story is tucked away in there, and it's, it's not in isolation. It's in contrast, actually, to something that just happens immediately before. Well, it's in contrast to the rich who are all putting in their gifts into the offering boxes. But just in the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, Jesus has been having a conflict, a testing with the scribes and the Sadducees. And they're asking hard questions and they're surprised at his answers. And um, in conclusion, Jesus gives a warning about them and he says, beware of those scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues and and places of honor at feasts. These who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. And yet in the midst of that, condemning these scribes and how they devour the, the, the houses, the resources of widows... Jesus then goes on to commend this widow who gives all that she has there in that temple. Why does she do that? Why is she doing this? Why does she give all that she has there in that place, even in the reality that it won't necessarily be used in the wisest of ways? The temple is corrupt. The leaders are unbelieving. They are, they are resisting the presence of God himself in Jesus. A lot of the synagogues and the leadership there are not much better. And yet Jesus also begins his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth. He's going to conclude his ministry in these final days teaching the people in the midst of the temple. 
But the whole structure is corrupt. John the Baptist shunned the temple. He starts his ministry of calling Israel to repentance, not in the heart of Jerusalem, but out at the Jordan. God reveals himself to the nation in Jesus, not at the temple in Jerusalem primarily, but in small, insignificant backwater villages in Galilee. Jesus himself has come to the temple and found it wanting and said, my father's house was to be a house of prayer of all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. So he says, your house, not my father's house, your house is left to you desolate. That's Jesus' condemnation upon their temple. And yet he commends this woman in her giving. First of all, we can say that as imperfect as it is, this still is the center of her worship. That God, God set his name on, on this, in this place in Jerusalem. This is where he would reveal himself, and this is the city in which he will reveal himself still, in Jesus' death for us and his resurrection, where Jesus' reign will be. Uh, God will continue to reveal himself through Jerusalem making himself known to all the nations from there. But this is where the offerings are offered. This is where the Passover lamb is presented. And this is where then she follows these patterns of worship that God has laid out for her and her generation in his, in his word and according to his law. And as imperfect as it is, there she will worship. Oh, we experience that week by week, don't we? There's a lot of talk about what a church ought to be and try to find the perfect church, and you can go church shopping forever. In fact, I remember when I was in seminary, in the 24 months that I was there packing in um, a much longer program into 24 months because that's the time that we had. But, of course, some students are visiting around trying to find a church to, to get into and get involved while they're, while they're there going to school. And 24 months later, some of my friends that I had started with were still visiting churches, hadn't found one yet. And they probably weren't going to if they were looking for that perfect church. And yet the church, as imperfect as it is, the church is yet that place where God has called us together to serve him, to grow together as his family and to follow him together. And so she comes to the temple, she gives this offering, and yet it's, these are the last two copper coins, value almost insignificant. But this is the last that she has. She has nothing left to live on, and yet she gives it. Is that irresponsible? Why does she do this? Well, widows are those whom God protects, God, those whom God provides for. I gave you in your notes several references in Deuteronomy also, in the book of Ruth, we have a whole story that, that, that centers around the desperate situation of two widows, a mother and a daughter-in-law, Naomi and Ruth. And we watch how God, through a kinsman redeemer that shows us something of Jesus himself, how God provides for them in their need. That, that God provides for and protects widows as well as orphans. The best example of this, perhaps, is the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah is sent to, to the area of Sidon, and there a Phine he comes across this Phoenician widow, and, and the Lord tells him, and he directs him there, and he, he asks her to make him a cake of bread. He's, he's hungry. 
And she, and she replies, I only have a handful of flour left. I'm going to make a few, a few cakes of bread for, for myself and my son, and then we're going to die. That's what we've got on the agenda for today. And Elijah says, well, okay, but first, could you do this? Could you make me a little cake first? That sounds very insensitive. And yet the promise of God is that if she will believe God, her flour will not run out. Her oil in that, in that flask will not, will not end until the famine is over in Israel. And so it is that God provides her for her day after day after day after day because that's the character and the promise of God. God will protect. God will provide. And that, I think, is why this widow does what she does. You see, it's actually a little easier for this widow than it was for the rich young ruler. He had enough that he thought he could easily be, he, he, he could easily be um, persuaded to think that he could provide for himself. He had enough for himself that it was too much to give away. She doesn't enough to fool herself or anybody else. She has these two little copper coins left, and they're not enough to survive on anyway. She has very little to lose. She will trust herself in God's hand. She does what the rich young ruler was not able to do, but she does it on the character of God. Now, economically, you may feel a little closer to the widow than, than to the wealthy. You wish that you could give more to this need or to that opportunity. You, you wonder sometimes if your giving really makes any difference at all. Why bother? I might as well use it for the pressing needs that I have because I can't give enough to make any difference. This widow could have easily said that. But she trusted herself to the Lord. And does your giving make any difference? Well, it does to Jesus, apparently. He's the one who notices, and he's the one who gives the true measure of its worth. He says she gave more than any of them. He knows. He values it. Why does she do this? I think it's because this widow loves the Lord her God with all her heart, with all her soul, with all her mind, and with all her coins. You see, love sacrifices. That's what it does, isn't it? Now we come back to Mother's Day. If you'd allow me just a brief mention, that a mother knows that. We can look back to the lives. And when I was a teenager, I had no idea. I knew things were not easy at home. I knew my mom being a, being a single mom, divorced, having to work. And, but I didn't know the fullness of all that she went for and all that she sacrificed for the sake of her children. Paul picks up on that. He uses the sacrifices of a mother as an example for ministry. And this, and this works for pastors, but it works for all of us and how we would give ourselves away for others. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I hope that reminds you of mom. 
I hope that reminds you of some of the sacrifice that you have benefited from. And, and any of us could look back in life and think how it could have been or should have been different. And yet, we've given an example. We've, been, we've given a taste of, of love that sacrifices. And I think that's what's going on with this widow here. How could she be so free with that which she seems to do so desperately need? Maybe the better question is, how could we so foolishly cling to that which can never provide for us? Do we not believe that God has the same heart to provide for us as he does for this woman? Does that the same God who is the father to the fatherless and the protector and provider of widows, does he not then know how to care for those who are his own children, heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus? Yes, my God shall provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. Now, this is important. This example of this woman, this widow's trust in God in the midst of her present troubles. That's an important way to start this section because what Jesus is going to spend most of the chapter now describing is the kinds of troubles that are going to come among those specifically who follow him. All through history there is going to be this pattern of difficulty, this pattern of trouble. And they need, to, they need to know that they too can trust God in the kinds of troubles that they're going to be going through, even as they change in the flow of history. So as she trusts God in her present troubles, so we can trust God in coming troubles. Faith, our faith in God, leans forward in life circumstances, into God's promised future. We don't just react to the circumstances as we find them in whatever way they are in the present. But we lean forward into God's future, even in the present realities as difficult as they might be. Look at verse 5. There's a, there's a tension that develops there. There's a distraction. Jesus looks at this widow and reinterprets her poverty in the midst of the other wealth that's being offered. And yet the disciples' eyes are on something else. While some were speaking of the temple in verse 5, how it was ordained or adorned with noble stones and offerings... He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. That's, that's stunning to the disciples. That's surprising to them. They say, well, teacher, when will this happen? What will be the sign that these things are about to take place? They're focused on the loss of the temple. They're focused on, is the temple going to be destructed? And what's going to be the sign of that? As if that's the end all in and of itself. Which, by the way, it is not. That's just one stop on the sweep of history that's going to impact Israel over the course of centuries. And yet they focus on that because they're focused on the temple. They're focused on these great stones, some of them larger than a city bus. They're focused on the, the massive wealth that has gone into the ornamentation of this place. And don't you sometimes get caught up in that? I know just recently, when on our way to Zimbabwe, we stopped in Rome, and we visited along the way several, several large churches, and it's amazing what can be put into a building. 
It's, it's, it's incredible. It's beyond belief. How could this have happened? How could, how could this be done? Things that took over 100 years, some of them, to construct. It's amazing. And it's easy to be caught up in that kind of impressive accomplishment and architecture and monuments. And yet Jesus, is, Jesus redirects their attention. He says, this stuff isn't going to last. Don't get caught up in it. He says, he says, see that you're not led astray. Don't be caught up in these things. The disciples are enamored by the great stones, the glorious ornamentations. He says, be careful what you're admiring. Be careful what you get caught up in. Be careful what you're devoted to. Don't be led astray. What are the signs? What's going to be coming? Well, he tells them first generally, and then he's going to get more specific. Let me talk about some of the general ways. I'm not going to give a lot of the details of this whole section because I want to get to what his application of it is. But we'll talk through it a little bit. He says, See that you're not led astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. But don't go after them. Don't follow them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be tetrified. Do not fear them. For these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. The end will not be immediately. The end will not be right then. It will be later. That's what he's saying. There's going to be bad things happening, and yet those initial bad things are not the end. Don't be fooled by deceptions and distractions. Don't follow the wrong causes and agendas. Don't fear with anxieties. Jesus normalizes the trouble that is coming upon this age. In this world, you will have tribulation, he says in John 6, John 16. But be of good courage. That means don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. But don't be surprised at trouble. Don't be, don't be surprised at tribulations. Expect it. If everything is going great, it might be reason to pause and consider, what am I missing? What's not happening here? Because he said you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. As in Revelation, as we walk through the book of Revelation, troubles occurred in those initial seven churches. They were suffering persecution as John himself was. And then at the end of the age, as we got into the tribulation period, it was only going to get many times worse. But there will be trouble throughout the time. Okay, so then he gives them a very broad overview. Normalizing trouble, he gives them a broad overview of it in verses 10 and 11. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. Basically, there's something wrong with people. They're going to fight with one another. Not only individually, but nation to nation. Sometimes senselessly. And you can think of war after war after war that this really didn't need to happen. This is, the, this is the product merely of human sinfulness and selfish ambition that wants to take for myself what somebody else has in one form or another. It happens on the individual level. It happens on the national level. And he says it's going to continue through the age. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. There's something wrong with the creation. There's something wrong with humanity, and that curse of sin has impacted creation. Thorns and thistles, earthquakes and famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And that points to the ultimate end. But, he says in verse 12, 
before all this. You see the turn? Generally, there's going to be trouble. Generally, it's going to be a mess. You're broken. The creation's broken. Any questions? The world's falling apart, but people are the problem. Okay? That's basically the situation. Okay, let's get more specific now. Before that end, before the signs in the heavens and great terrors and signs, before all of this, verses 12 to 19, there's going to be a general persecution. There's going to be trouble. You're going to be delivered up before synagogues and councils and rulers. And this seems to describe very well the immediate persecution that the church experienced after Jesus' resurrection as described in the book of Acts. So in verses 12 to 19, right alongside there, the book of Acts. Okay, over all of this, you've got the book of Revelation, but right here you've especially got the book of Acts and this particular persecution that, that continues up until the Jewish revolt that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, I will point out one thing in, in, in verses 21, or rather, chapter 21, 12 to 19. There's one phrase in there. There's some comfort along the way. You're going to be delivered up even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, by your continuing in faith, you will gain your lives. Well, hold on a minute. First of all, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. How do those go together? Do you ever wonder about that? What is he saying here? It seems like there's a contradiction here. Some are going to die, but not. Now that, that general statement, there's actually a Hebrew idiom, not a hair of your head will perish. You can trace that several times through the Old Testament. It's a common phrase. It means God has got you. God will take care of you. You've got nothing to worry about. Not a hair of your head will perish. I know it sounds like your grandfather's exaggeration, right? But it's God's assurance that he has you. And... You know, I, I, I've, I've had reason to question that verse. Not a hair of your head will perish. Really? And yet, if it's true, then you know what that tells me? In the resurrection. In the resurrection, full head of hair. No thinning at all. That's really good news for some of us, isn't it? Yes, yes. You see, that's my confidence. I could say, hey, God, your promise at this level is not true. Well, first of all, it's an expression rather than a specific promise. God does have you. God does have me. And yet, I think there is a hint there of a specific promise as well. Even though they deliver you to death, what is that death? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? No, we will be raised in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be transformed. Okay, so there is that initial persecution that they need not fear. They can trust God in the coming trouble. It's going to get very, very bad, in fact, in Jerusalem. And verses 20 to 24 describe that. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
Verse 24, they will be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that word fulfilled means until they run their course, until the time given to the Gentiles is completed. The amount of time that's been allocated, that amount of time has passed. That's what the phrase means when, or when that word is used in reference to time. So then... There's a specific thing that's going to happen in Jerusalem, and it happened between A.D. 66 and A.D. 70. When there's a Jewish revolt against Roman oppression in the land of Israel, and first they, they, they sent the, basically the small band of Israelites that stood up and fought, they sent an entire Roman legion running. Well, that was a grave embarrassment, and the, and the Romans, when that happens, they tend to come back with a whole bunch more legions. And that's what they did, and they begin to go village by village, and uh, town by town, first in Galilee, and then the coastal plain, and down the Jordan valleys till they surrounded Jerusalem, and they come up to Jerusalem, and the city is completely under siege. All the rest of the outposts, except Masada, have been by this time basically eliminated. And uh, there is a terrible time. And so Jesus, Jesus looking down and seeing this in the near future for them, a matter of decades, he's telling them to flee the towns, to flee the cities, to go hide in the hills like they used to do when the Philistines were coming. If they're going to escape, if they're going to believe his warning. Don't believe the false promises and the false messiahs who will say, no, don't worry, Jerusalem cannot be taken. Yes, it will. And that is when his words that not one stone of these is going to be left standing upon another. That's when those words were very literally fulfilled. Now that's important. Because what Jesus says that we can validate in the book of Acts. What Jesus says that we can validate in the, in the near history in A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem and not one stone continues upon another and that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You know, even today, a Jewish person cannot pray on the Temple Mount. They are not allowed to. It is forbidden. Jewish, Israeli police will stop them from praying on Temple Mount that it doesn't cause a big, huge uproar and uh, a tumult. The, the um, Jerusalem, even today, in fact, after, after the Jewish revolts, the Roman emperors forbid any Jewish people from entering Jerusalem except one day a year to mourn the loss of their temple on the day that it was destroyed. And then the Byzantine Christian era comes along and the, and, the, and the Byzantine Christians believe that they need to stand in the fulfillment of Jesus' words that not one stone will be left on top of another so the Temple Mount must stay desolate. They allowed no Jews there to worship either. And then, the, of course, the Arab rulers, those things continued and it continues even up until the present time. But, but the importance of Jesus' words being literally fulfilled means the rest of his words also. It encourages us. It doesn't mean that the rest of his words will also be fulfilled because all of his words will always be fulfilled no matter what we see or don't see in previous fulfillment. But it gives us courage. And that's what Jesus wants. He says, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Don't fear. I have overcome the world. And when we see things play out just the way that he said, it tells us that the rest of it also, why would we not believe that the rest of it also will play out just as he said? 
And so let's move on to that. Jerusalem in AD 70 actually prefigures the coming abomination of desolation when the end of the age will come and Jerusalem will once again be dead center in those purposes. That's described in, in verses 25 to 28. Let me, let me read verses 25 to 28. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress in nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding over what is coming on the world for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Does this not sound like the book of Revelation? I gave you a string of prophecies from Isaiah and Joel and other places in your notes. So you could go back and take a look at some of these. The prophets said these things before. Jesus is not just pulling them out of the air now. Jesus is not telling them things they never heard before. He's telling them that what the, promise, what the prophets had said is going to come true. They can count on it. God's word will be true. Did not Jesus say, though heaven and earth were to pass away? His word would never pass away. All of these things will be fulfilled. So that's what he's saying here. He's not just telling them new information. He's going back to what the prophets had already said. And then, in verse 27, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Revelation chapter 19. Now when these things begin to take place, the beginnings of this great tribulation, when these things, the things that are described by the prophets and here in these particular verses, these are the things, these things refers to specifically not all the stuff, but not all the trouble all through history because then the, then the prediction would be meaningless. To say that whenever you see persecution, know that the time of your redemption is at hand. Your redemption is drawing near. That wouldn't make any sense. In A.D. 40, your redemption is near. Well, it's been a lot of time since then. But when you see these troubles, particularly to the tribulation, when that happens, your redemption is near. Basically, when, when Satan rages at his worst, that's when God is working his ultimate redemption. So here you have then, ultimately described in verses 25 to 28, the, the end of the age and the coming of the Lord. Ernest Hemingway, in a book curiously entitled, The Sun Also Rises. In the midst of the most difficult times, remember, the sun also rises. The sun does set, but the sun also rises. In that book, one character asks another the question, so how did you become bankrupt? And the answer said, well, two ways. Gradually, and then Suddenly. How did you become bankrupt? A little at a time, and then all at once. How will the end of this age come? Gradually, and then suddenly. Gradually, we can see it coming, we can see it coming, we can see it coming. When the end actually comes, we don't know. We can see it coming, we can see it coming, but we don't know when until suddenly. Here we are. And, the, and that final week is thrust upon us and all the events that are included in the book of the Revelation. 
And so he tells them a parable in verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out to leaf, you see yourself, you know that summer is already near. So when you see these things, what things? These things, those particular signs that have been highlighted by the prophets that he refers to again in those few verses. Those tribulation things, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It is no good to tell Christians in A.D. 40 or 60 or 70 that the kingdom of God was near. It was not yet. But when things are at their absolute worst, those who believe in Jesus are going to need to know. When it's like this, our redemption is near. Our Savior is coming. And they can be confident of it. When these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. This generation, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Some people would say simply that just means that Israel as a people will not pass away. The generation is the people, the ethnic people of Israel. They will continue as a people, and it is astounding that Israel still exists today as an ethnic recognizable people. Where are the Philistines? They are not the Palestinians in the land today. Those are not the Philistines. Where are the Philistines? Where are the Canaanites? Where are the Hittites? Nobody knows they're gone. But Israel's still there. And so, well, this generation is Israel will continue until these things be fulfilled. Well, that's a, that, that, that's a case of right, truth, wrong text. But that's not what the, the word generation typically means. So that's forcing something into the passage just to get a good answer. It's a good answer, but it's just not coming from this passage, I don't think. A more common understanding of this generation will not pass away uh, came about really in the early 80s. A generation is about 40 years. A human generation is 40 years between generations. I, I forget all the ways that people came to that, but they concluded that, well, Israel is the fig tree. And so when, it, when the fig tree blossoms in 1948, well, within 40 years, one biblical generation, all of these things are going to come to pass. And wasn't it good to hear in 1980 that Jesus is coming by 1988? And if you're pre-trib rapture, then we back that up seven years and Jesus is coming in 81. And what are you all still doing here? Whoops, Hal Lindsey didn't even make it. I mean, he, he, he was still around after 81 or 88 or 90, and, and on it goes. And so we had to do a little recalibrating once again. That didn't quite hold off, hold out as exciting as that was. I think the, the, the best answer for this generation is the generation of those who are alive when they see these things. The same things that the prophet said, this is the sign of the end of the age. The same things that Jesus himself said, this is the sign that you know the end is here. Look up, your redemption. It's here, it's going to be that soon. In fact, it's not merely in their lifetime. It's going to be within seven years as we understand the book of Revelation. So that's the promise. When things get at their worst, the, the fig tree is not merely Israel because he says the fig tree and all the trees. It's not a matter of making the fig tree Israel. The text just doesn't go there. But I said all that to say this. I got you excited about the end coming so we can get back to some of the mundane stuff. Because that's how the chapter starts. That's how it ends. But that's where we live. Okay? What does Jesus say about all this? Therefore, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that... 
And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all who dwell upon the face of the earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says, I want you to stay alert. I want you to pray strong so that you're ready for my coming and to stand in my presence. Now, none of us know if we will continue in this life until his coming. But all of us who believe in Jesus would look toward the day and we don't know when. We don't know how quickly time might run. We don't know when that day would come that it'll be our moment to stand before the presence of the Lord. But we would watch ourselves. We would stay alert and we would pray strong so that we are ready to stand in his presence. Watch yourself, he says. Watch yourself lest your heart be weighed down in the wrong responses. And the wrong responses he lists as dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Dissipation or a false fulfillment. Dissipation is excess indulgement. Now, if, you, if alcohol is involved, then the dissipation leads to the drunkenness, but that's not necessarily the point. Dissipation can be any kind of indulgent excess in which you intend to find your fulfillment. This will satisfy me. This will fulfill me. I will live large. The world may be falling apart, but I've got mine. And I'm going to live it up. And I'm going to ignore the terrible and just, just fill myself with all of these pleasures and sensuality, the, the pleasing of the senses that the world offers. The seeming best in physical life does not nurture spiritual life. Jesus says, watch out for the false fulfillment of excess and indulgement. If we find our comfort and satisfaction in this world, how will we know when we should be different? If we take our cues from this world and seek and, 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 and grab hold of its solution and enjoy its pleasures, how will we know, how will we tell the difference when it's gone way too far? Watch yourself, he says, from drunkenness, a false escape. If dissipation, if indulgent excess is a false fulfillment, then drunkenness is a false escape from the harsh realities of human sin and fallenness. The futility of all kinds of addictive behaviors for escape, whether it's drinking or drugs, the internet or gaming, never mind artificial intelligence, don't fall for artificial life. Don't fall for a pretend reality because the reality that face confronts you is too depressing. And so we easily spin into some other self-medicating, looking for pleasure somewhere because life is so hard and difficult. But it's a false escape. It is not a real escape. Watch yourselves. Unless your heart be weighed down by false, in, false fulfillment and in indulgence, false escape in addictive behaviors of all kinds. And you know what yours is. You know what you do to feel better when it hurts. And if it is not turning to the Lord in prayer, if it is not filling your heart on his promises, you know what your false medication is. 
But don't go there. Watch yourself. Watch yourself for the futile anxieties of this broken life on the earth. This, the futile anxieties, the, the getting all worked up about the stuff you cannot fix. The, the, the um, managing of troubles and crisis, the trying to f- fix society instead of seeking to save people. We're going to be called to organize, to support, to rally, to create change, to take our culture back, to take our country back. Have you heard those calls already? Well, can I ask you, back to what? What exactly are we going to take our culture back to? Better behavior? False fulfillments? Increased prosperity? A facade of faith where people pretend to believe or think they do and yet have not been confronted in their desperate need of the gospel? What we need to give ourselves to is not trying to fix the brokenness of society. Let the brokenness around us raise the need for salvation in Christ and we will do those things that get others ready for Jesus' return. The right response is to stay awake, to be alert to what's going on around us, and to pray for strength. And I don't need to give a catalog of all the ungodly things that are going on around us. We like to do that to feel better about ourselves by judging all the sin that's around us in other places. That has its own dangerous, potentially, effect in thinking that I'm all right because I'm not like that. So we need to be alert, awake, eyes open, spiritual eyes open. For what God has to say to us, what transforming and changing work would he do in us as well as to stay awake and alert in recognition of the evil days and the enemy's schemes because his schemes, which we are not ignorant of, his schemes are to take us along with the world. And easily we'll do that. Easily we'll follow along. So we need to be alert concerning ourselves as well as the ways that are around us. As Jesus said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds Awake and alert when he comes. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And easily we will give in. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Obviously, that's a verse that's addressed to, do, to men in the church. Act like men. Be strong. Act like the men that God created you in his image to be and be watchful and stand firm in the faith for the sake of those around you. He says, stay awake. Be alert. Have your eyes wide open and pray for strength. Pray for strength that you might escape. Now that escapism, that doesn't really jazz me. I don't get excited about that until I looked at the Word. This is not an escapism. Okay, the world's going to get worse. I just pray the rapture would come all the sooner so we can just check out of here. Beam me up, Lord. There's no intelligent life down here. You've heard that before. We've laughed about it together, right? But that's not the point, really. I know that because that was not Jesus' point. Jesus was not about escapism. Jesus was about, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus came into this mess for us. And if we're going to follow him, we're going to go into the hurt and brokenness for the sake of people around us. So it's not really about escaping, but it is about prevailing. The two other times that that word is used 
In the New Testament, it's, it's translated prevail, that you might prevail. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail, have victory against you, against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, all right? And then one of the places it's used is in Luke 23, when the mob's loud cries prevailed over Pilate's weak will. And, and so Jesus says, pray that you may prevail. That's why I say pray for strength. Stay awake and pray for strength. It's easy. Stay alert, stay awake, and pray for strength. That's the two takeaways that Jesus would tell you. The world's a mess. It's going to get worse. Stay awake and pray for strength. You can have victory. You can prevail in faithfulness. That's the good news. Stay awake and pray for strength. I was, several of our men were able to go to the Basics Conference, which is outside of Cleveland, a Parkside Church with Alistair Begg. Um, that was earlier this week. I was not able to go this year with them, but I was able to follow along with, I was able to kind of keep track of them while they were away, watching some of the sessions online. And, and uh, as I did that, one of the, one of the Q&A sessions that they had, um, pastors asked Alistair, you know, as he looked back on his long pastoral, pastoral ministry, what would he say to a young pastor? What would he do differently? If he were starting over, I think was the way it was phrased, what would he do differently? And his answer was, I would pray more. I would pray more. And he went back to that several times. That he, did, he didn't have anything else. He didn't have any great strategies or any other big conclusions. It, things he would do differently is he would pray more. That impacted me. Easily we can forget to pray. We can be busy about what needs to be done that we forget to pray. You know, in the first service, and we, we opened up the first service very similar to how we opened up the second service, except there I remembered to have you stand as we read God's Word together, because then right after standing we're, and reading God's Word together, we were going to sing together, and all that went very well. I forgot to have you stand in the second service, but that's okay. You all did just fine. And, uh, but after, we, after I shared about Tom's going to be with the Lord. And after we read 1 Corinthians, I wanted to pray. I, want, I wanted us to, be able to, to pray together there. I forgot. And I said, let's sing. And I went and sat down and I, for, the pastor forgot to pray. That's a terrible thing. Well, don't look at me like that. <laughs> you do it too. Easily we will, in the midst of things going on, we'll easily forget to pray. Pray for strength. We are not strong enough. I love the Rick Mullen song, we are not as strong as we think we are. In the midst, and so we can prevail, stay awake, pray for strength, and then Jesus continues to be faithful. Look at verse 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olive, Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So he teaches in the temple, and he goes out to the Mount of Olives at night. He comes back the next day, and he teaches at the temple, and the people come and hear him. And he goes out, and he goes to the Mount of Olives at night. And he comes back the next day until the night that he's betrayed. And there they find him. Where? On the Mount of Olivet. It's kind of like Daniel, who after they made the decree that nobody should pray except to the king, he goes back to his room just as before, opens his windows to Jerusalem just as before, and he continues to do the mundane same things that you wonder if it's making any difference at all. I mean, yet that's what God has set before you to do. Until he comes, brothers and sisters, we will walk with him. We will walk one foot 
after another. We will keep doing the same good things. We will continue to do those things that get ourselves and others ready for Jesus' return. That's all that matters. It doesn't have to be any big grand scheme or strategy. We will do the things. We will watch and pray. We will stay awake and we will pray for strength that we can be faithful until his coming. In the midst of coming troubles, may people see that you remain clear-sighted and thus strong in your faith. May they come to you asking that same question we would ask the woman. Why do you do that? It doesn't make any sense to them. Your sacrifice of faith, whatever it is, And in the midst of real troubles, might you point them to the God who rescues and restores, the one whom you can trust for the future in the midst of these troubles. I pray that you will be strengthened to give an answer for the hope that is in those moments so evident in you. Let's pray. Father, would you indeed help us to remember how much we need you Lord, not in some pious pretense of dependency, but Lord, in a, in a true humility that remembers to pray, but doesn't make a show of it. Lord, we do acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that you have promised to strengthen us, to enable us. You've promised to even give us words to say in those moments. You have promised to be our help in time of need. If the woman, that widow woman, could trust you with her needs for that day, the Lord help us to also so honor you by trusting you in the needs today. Father, for many of us, the needs don't seem nearly as pressing and urgent But Lord, maybe we don't nearly realize how urgent it is that we trust you and call upon you for our own spiritual vitality and life. And Lord, for our own awareness, awakeness, sensitivity spiritually to the people around us. Oh God, keep us ready, awake and alert, looking not only for ourselves, but looking to the people around us, those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ and need love and grace and mercy and comfort and encouragement, those around us who do not know Jesus and need hope in him above all else. Lord, open our eyes. Humble our hearts. Father, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.